everybody. Welcome back to the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX has also recently announced their stocks beta rolling out to U.S. customers to enable crypto, stocks, and NFT trading in one interface. This includes hundreds of U.S. exchange-listed securities, including common stocks and ETFs, and an integrated experience within the existing FTX U.S. cryptocurrency trading application. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's Blockware one or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Yeah, I didn't um usually I have questions right now for this, but for this one I figured just be like super informal. We could just kind of shoot the shit. So with it. Let's let's first start with um what's what's new with you uh, you know obviously you've got the podcast going on like what's going on in, in you know luke martin's world uh, from a crypto perspective got you is this live too by the way or yeah. we're fully oh, no, we're not we're not live but we're recording all right got you um dude what is what is going on i think the, the biggest focus for me right now is obviously my own podcast uh it's been fun it's it's kind of something that i stumbled into over the past what five years now that i've been doing this full-time um making bets and, and trading in that, you know, four or five years ago, it was just let's have some fun on Twitter and right place, right time. It turned out everyone else found Bitcoin and, and all coins interesting as well. And so that following grew. And then from there, I played around with a ton of different things. I started a newsletter. Um, I've tried several businesses, some that scaled, some that didn't. And I realized I never, I never wanted to have something where I was like trying to, um, directly monetize my audience. Like it just came across. I didn't enjoy the experience and, and I didn't want that to be the way that I make money. I'd rather make money by uh, making bets and, and hopefully in the market. And then outside of that, it was like, if, if there's a way I can get paid to continue learning, that'd be the dream. And so the podcast, I've stumbled into this opportunity where, you know, I hit up uh, any fund manager or exchange owner, or analyst, people like yourself and, and have them on and ask them the questions that I'm already thinking about myself and turn that into a show. And, and so it's one of those things where I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, it's a nice bonus that other people find it interesting and, and it's a you know cherry on top that I get paid for it as well. So um, that's the biggest focus for me uh, outside of that. I mean, there's really not that much outside of that, dude. This is uh, <laughs> as full time as it gets. I, yeah. I run the podcast. I stare at charts all day. Uh, I try to work out as much as I can. And during this bear market, I find myself Playing some poker again. That's how you know it's a bear market. When I start running into Jeebus nine one one on uh, on the poker streets, and and uh, I start spending more hours a day on the on the poker table than I do staring at the charts. But you know, outside of that, that's about it. I think like one thing you touched on, which is you know obviously like really relevant to me as well, is like the willingness for people in the space to come on the podcast and record. Like, there's been several instances where. I've just DM'd some random person that, you know, I love their stuff. And I was like, there's a very low chance they'll respond. But like, because the space is so infantile, people are willing to come on and share their thoughts. And like, 
it's really refreshing. I mean, obviously, like, you know, I've never had a career in trad five, but from the outside, and it seems like everything's very, like, you know, keep your eyes on your own paper, like no one's sharing anything versus here in the crypto space. It's like, I mean, it is zero sum, but at the same time, like there is some aspect of you're able to kind of win together to some degree. Um, and like, I met again, like a lot of cool people through doing the podcast and like, like just, you know, people you wouldn't otherwise, I guess, be able to get access to. One question I want to ask you is like going back to, you kind of start talking about the bear market. Going back to like late 2017, 2018, you know, I wasn't around, maybe some of our listeners weren't around, but, you know, I think there's a lot of like market participants that got in, uh, in, you know, late 2020, probably right. in 2021. Can you walk us through like, what was the end of 2017 like, and then more relevant <laughs> to like kind of today, what was that bear market like on the back half of that? Cause it, you know, yeah. from what I, it sounds like there were just like five people trading against each other basically. Yeah, uh, that it's what it felt like at times for sure. Uh, the answer might be a bit surprising though. Like end of 2017, um, it was such a different, such a different environment, but also a different feel than than the current bear market. Uh, partially because the way that we traded after the first top at, at 20k, I mean, price went down to like 6k a few days later, and then we bounced back to like 14k a couple days after that. I mean, it was. You know, people look at 20K and say, oh, that was the day the bubble popped. And, and for the next couple of years, it was brutal. That really wasn't the case. You know, Bitcoin dropped. People said it was over. Then we bounced a couple hundred percent. People were like, no, it's right back on. It took everyone, uh, myself, definitely. Maybe some people knew it was over, but it, it took everyone a couple months uh, to realize that that's probably going to be the top for a while. Um, so it was much more violent. The moves were uh, the feeling was that 20K you know, it was definitely going to be the top for a long time. Like people uh, kind of thought it was all over at that point. I would say the other big difference, and this is more of a market structure thing in crypto that's just changed in the past two years, was after the 2017 top, it wasn't, it wasn't so such a bad trading environment. And what I mean by that as it is uh, currently, so what I mean by that is go back to 2017, Bitcoin tops at 20K, and then for the next six or nine months, you know, we have these smaller bounces uh, every single time. It bounces 100%, then it only bounces 50%, then it only bounces 20%. And then we just kind of settle around 6K for six months, which was brutal in 2018. But during that time from, what, end of 2017 until about halfway through the year, so May, June of 2018, Bitcoin became horrible to trade because it was just bounce and, and volatility was low and we were grinding lower. But altcoins were incredible. That was one of the biggest alt seasons we'd ever seen. It happened after the Bitcoin top. So the reason that that happened the way it did versus this cycle, it did not happen like that, was because back then everyone was trading their altcoins versus Bitcoin. And it wasn't so much of like individual traders were choosing to do that. It was the exchanges. So exchanges were pricing almost every coin uh, versus Bitcoin. Those were the dominant markets. It wasn't USDT or any other stable coin. And the other factor there was we didn't have perps and futures for every single coin. So now when you go to trade your favorite altcoin, Solana, AVAX, ADA, ETH, you know, go down the list. There's like coins in the rank number 400 that have their own perpetuals and own futures markets. Back then, that wasn't a thing. They only traded versus Bitcoin. So when Bitcoin tops at 20K and then grinds lower for six months, all that Bitcoin money, right, wanted a place to go, especially for people that still thought we were going to go up. And so where did it go? It went to it went to altcoins. And so for 
you know, January of 2018, all the way through May of 2018, it was all coins were doing like five, 10, 20 X. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was also ICO season had just ended. People still thought the ICO uh, bubble was going to continue. We weren't having uh, a ridiculous decline in ETH yet. So um, that was like one of the hottest times to trade. It was, it was by far one of my best, uh, you know, couple quarter or half year periods in crypto. That was a major difference of that bear market versus this one was even after the peak, if your timing was sloppy, like mine was, and you were still bullish, you didn't really get punished for it. You, you kind of got rewarded. Now, you know, after May and June, once Bitcoin really started to settle down at like 6K, then you got punished for it, right? Then alt started dropping and people realized the party was over. Uh, whispers of regulation started happening. We started realizing that there wasn't going to be a, a hundred new ICOs every single week. And uh, a lot of these things definitely weren't going to survive. So it did end rapidly after that. But I would say that was one of the biggest differences was market structurally, since things traded against Bitcoin, alts actually had a very, very big run after the Bitcoin top. Um, I'd say the other like big difference there was there wasn't this embedded belief that uh, Bitcoin and, and ETH, I mean, ETH wasn't really a thing outside of just being an ICO platform. There wasn't this belief that this was all going to come back and we were going to, you know, everything was going to go higher. Yes, there were maximalists that believe that. Yes, there were true believers that believe that. But um, it wasn't, um, you had to have serious conviction to, to truly think that, that we were going to hit 20K again. Now, I don't think that's ridiculous to say at all. Even if you're part-time crypto to say, uh, eventually in the next couple of years, Bitcoin will find a new all-time high. Like that's not contrarian law. I would say almost everyone that owns some crypto believes that. Back then, it was that was a much bigger um, uh, problem was like, how, how the hell are we gonna get back to 20K, dude? That was the one bubble. If you didn't make all your wealth then, you're, you're just screwed. And so I would say that's, uh, th those are two uh, giant differences. Yes, the, the, the space definitely felt smaller. Um, it was very, you know, uh, PVP. Everyone was trading on BitMEX after that. Uh, a lot of guys went to um, foreign, foreign exchange trading. People thought that was going to be the only way to make money. People thought, uh, you know, trading stocks were going to be the only way to make money because it wasn't so, such a bad macro environment yet. Uh, stocks were still going up. It was more just, wow, we missed the one chance to sell this crypto bubble. We went to 20K. How the hell is that ever going to happen again? Right. And fast forward, you know, six months or a year, we dropped to 3K and, and, uh, and it all starts over and, and you see it, uh, you see it triple all the way up to 60. So uh, a couple of differences, some, some things uh, remain the same. Would you say the kind of market makeup of just pure speculators versus quote unquote fundamental investors has shifted in terms of like on a relative basis, the amount that are just purely trading what, you know, they understand as just a reflexive vehicle for speculation versus, you know, actual, high, you know, have real fundamental understanding in XYZ protocol uh, or, you know, Bitcoin or, or ETH or whatever it may be. Like, do you think that's shifted from that time period to now? Um, like, did people have fundamental conviction aside from, you know, perhaps maybe Bitcoin and ETH sure. and any of the things that were back, you know, back then. Sure. Sure. I mean, people definitely had fundamental conviction in Bitcoin. I mean, I have all the way through, even if kind of the, the belief that we would hit a new all-time high uh, again was tough to have. It was, it was still a fundamental belief that this is going to be important. Money will keep piling in here. And um, it was harder to see a path forward, but definitely uh, I think the, the amount of people that believed in Bitcoin was, was still very strong. Outside of that though, for ETH and everything else, um, 
you know, it's tough to say because I think I still think the large majority of anyone that's investing in altcoins, it's all just speculation, right? I'm not going to uh, hide that or, or uh, sugarcoat that at all. That's what a lot of these vehicles are. I treat them as VC bets. I think that it's hard to have long-term conviction in a lot of them. I think that um, they're, they're, it's the furthest you can go on the risk curve if you're investing in any of this stuff. Um, but at the time, yeah, as I said, ETH wasn't um, a thing. I remember talking to, to Split Capital um, and, and Dan Metashevsky of CMS Holdings about this. And people forget this. It's like there was no DeFi yet. There was no uh, NFT booming NFT ecosystem. There wasn't um, these paths forward on, on how we were going to use this platform. It was more just this is a great fundraising vehicle. And especially when the ICOs and the, and the fundraising stopped for a while before we had uh, DEX offerings, before we had liquidity mining and all these new mechanisms that were going to distribute tokens and how people launch projects. It was just, wow, you know, <laughs> are we going to wait again for people to start launching uh, a million new ICOs? Like, how are we going to get through this? Are we going to wait for regulation to come that somehow lets us do ICOs a new way? So, you know, I'm probably overgeneralizing that. There's going to be some Ethereum people that listen to this and say, no, I had fundamental belief in ETH and I knew all this was coming. I think the majority of us, though, you know, back then it was very speculative. I think today still it's very speculative. But at least now, now we have seen um, some cool systems that can be built, whether they're lending systems, whether they're decentralized exchanges, whether they're, these aren't pipe dreams anymore, right? These things have users, even if they're small amount of users, there's billions of dollars uh, flowing through some of these protocols. You know, now you can look at some of these and say, okay, you know, this is how they'll work because this is how they're working right now in kind of a beta period with a small amount of users. But back then, this was all like white papers. That's that's what you were betting on. So um, today it's it's much easier. I don't know if that's a shift of like um, you know people deciding to use different systems and people deciding to be more fundamental investors more uh, any more than it is just now. We've seen some use case. Like we we've seen the new systems built. We've ran money through them. We know how they work and we know how they can work. So uh, naturally, as things progress, you can build better models for them. The models are still very rough, so it's still all very speculative. But uh, but yeah, I would say in the past few years, a lot of the stuff has become legitimized. At the same time, the vast majority of anything outside of Bitcoin and ETH is, is going to be highly speculative, and I think it stays like that for a long time. I don't, I don't want to hide that from anyone. Right? It's it's a high risk game, and you got to know what you're getting into. Yeah, for sure. What do you think personally is Luke Martin's been in the space for a long time? What are the things that get you excited in the space? Obviously. I think, you know, 90% of everyone in the space, except for maybe like Kyle Samani, have a long-term conviction in Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, obviously, I think the thesis for that is relatively straightforward. And, um, you know, I, I talk to people about Bitcoin on like 80, 90% of my podcasts. And like, you know, I think uh, the thesis of, of Bitcoin has been driven home. But, you know, I think you might have some interesting opinions for the listeners as to some other aspects of the market that are potentially interesting. Right. Um, here's how I, here's how I'm going to phrase it, because I, I one thing I've tried to do, especially as I've, I've stumbled into uh, now having an audience, I'm sure a lot of them are bots, but I do have a fair amount of real people following me on Twitter and, and the podcast as well, that I always want to be um, aware of that, right? That people do follow and, and for right or for wrong, maybe they listen to some of my opinions and God forbid they, they make bets uh, based on that. I want to be very clear in that I'm not recommending that anyone goes out and buys ETH or buys uh, altcoins or buys even Bitcoin. Like I'm not here to convince anyone. I am fine sharing my opinions on some of the stuff though, because I just do find it fascinating. I kind of view it as um, 
like think about if <laughs> this is going to be a crazy analogy. Imagine if crypto was a video game like Grand Theft Auto, right? Like you can do anything in Grand Theft Auto in this in this world that's been created, this metaverse, if you will. Right. And inside the game, you can rob a grocery store. You can go on uh, on the run from cops. You can do whatever. You can steal a car. Now, are you like morally wrong for doing that inside the video game? I don't think so. That's kind of what the game was built for. Right. The game was built to, to have fun and bend the rules and and do whatever the hell you want. Now, if crypto is is that same game, using that analogy, it's, it's this digital world we've created with a lot of experiments on how we think the world could work in the future. Um, is it wrong if you trade some altcoins? Is it wrong if you make bets on uh, the next layer one? If you, is it wrong if you make bets on these new digitally scarce NFTs, even if we don't know what they're going to be used for in the future? Yeah, I, I don't say that's wrong, right? Like it's if you want to play GTA by the rules and, and follow and, and stop at the traffic lights, go for it. Like that's fine. You can play the game like that. But if the game of crypto is to acquire wealth, make bets on things you find interesting, um, you know, as long as you're not doing anything malicious and, and uh, you know, pump and dumping and, and you know, trying to uh, get people to, to get into things as you sell on them. I think it's fine to, to play within this new digital world we've created. So I think that um, broadly, I think NFTs are interesting. I'm probably one of the only people that didn't make a boatload of money on NFTs, although I still track it very closely. It's just uh, I miss the punks. I miss the apes. I miss a lot of that run up. I do think that uh, inside of crypto, I try to always focus on what's the easiest table to sit at, uh, which is a poker analogy in the sense that you know, if, if you walk into a poker room and there's eight pros at one table and there's eight guys that uh, have never studied ranges and, and a solver, I would rather sit with those guys, right? I'd rather sit with the guys that are drinking beer and play poker against them. And so if you're looking at like the easiest table in crypto and, and we're ranking them, I think trading Bitcoin has gotten exponentially harder. It's the biggest pond. It's where most funds are focused. We now have uh, legit traditional market makers in this space. It trades like a macro asset, right? If you're sitting there and trying to have an edge trading Bitcoin, good luck. I mean, there, there's I can count on, on, on one hand the number of individual traders that don't work at a fund that can do that successfully full time. I mean, it's, it's a very, very tough market. Uh, now, if you go down the list, I would say all coins are a slightly easier table, less efficient markets. Um, you can have more info asymmetry there. If you just study one altcoin, you're probably going to know more than you know, 99% of people. It's just really hard to keep up with it. And there's not a Bloomberg terminal where you can you know, track all this stuff. And that's one of the biggest challenges in crypto is, is figuring out what the hell is going on with these projects. Sometimes you have to dive into Discord. Sometimes you have to just follow the project lead on Twitter and he tweets out some announcement. You can see that for anyone else. So I think altcoins can give you one edge if you do want to focus on that. And then this new table that's arrived in the past year or two is NFT. And it's something that I haven't really taken advantage of, but I think that, um, you know, if, if you look at the amount of traders, I mean, Coinbase's numbers show this, retail traders have just gotten slaughtered over the past couple of years. Maybe it's because they were trading Bitcoin. Maybe it's because they were uh, trading alts, which it was a tough cycle to trade. And I think a lot of people have moved to NFTs. And NFTs are also a market where it's not, you know, funds can't really move in and play this market. It's a very fragmented, uh, retail-friendly uh, market. And so I think that's one of the easiest tables. And so like, just from uh, a perspective of like, what are the games I can make the most money in and have an edge here in crypto? I think you have to look at alts and, and NFTs for that reason alone. Now, it's very hard to have long-term uh, conviction or belief or like even a vision for where some of this stuff ends up in five or 10 years, because it's so early in the experimental phase. Um, 
But if you're looking at short-term games and the next six months, the next year in crypto, I do think those are the easiest tables. I also love uh, thinking about and trading things like ETH, Solana, and AVAX. Because even if I don't think that ETH is, is competing versus Bitcoin to be uh, sound money and to fulfill the same uh, role as Bitcoin, I do think you know, some, of the, some of the use case and, and um, some of the things we've built within Ethereum, things like decentralized exchanges, things like uh, lending protocols, ways, I think that these are actually like complementary to Bitcoin in a way. And I wish that some Bitcoiners would see that in, in the sense that if we're going to have this uh, world where people are using Bitcoin as collateral for, for real, world, real world purchases, if people are storing their wealth in Bitcoin, you're going to want platforms that help you use that Bitcoin if you want to do something else with it, right? If you want to lend that out to someone, if you want to earn interest on it, if you want to I know that like those those words have such a bad connotation now because we've seen uh, some companies that uh, took on too much leverage and, and were irresponsible. But you know, put that aside. Like that's going to happen in, in speculative manias. There's going to be companies that take too much risk. If you look five and ten years and twenty years out in the future, you're going to want to have systems that allow you to use your Bitcoin and that hopefully uh, can survive as long as Bitcoin. And I think decentralized systems can do that. So uh, I'm very bullish on things that can be complementary to Bitcoin. And I think if uh, some Bitcoiners looked at these systems like that, right, you can hate Ethereum and the ETH token and still think it's a positive thing if we have decentralized exchanges, decentralized stablecoins, uh, decentralized ways to, to borrow and lend. Those are positive things for a Bitcoin world. And so I'm very bullish on those things if we can solve them. I'm not at all recommending that people go out there and put all their money into each of these things. Right? You need to decide if that's what you want to do on your own. But I do think that um, it's hard, you know, set aside that you think ETH and these things are evil and just look at it fr from, the, from the perspective, because I know there's a lot of Bitcoiners that listen to this, look at it from the perspective of what would be beneficial to Bitcoin in the long term. Do we always want just Bitcoin interacting with centralized systems or do we want centralized systems running in parallel that can also help uh, Bitcoin? And I think it's a pretty easy decision to make based on that. And and so I try to focus on some things like that. Obviously, I play some shorter-term games as well, but uh, yeah. <laughs> harder, harder to explain. Harder to explain the thesis on those. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, kind of the high-level takeaway that I got is you view Bitcoin as the monetary premium, and you can use that monetary premium on different, you know, venues or platforms, uh, and whether you're borrowing or lending or whatever it may be. I guess you know I, I see it similar to you. I guess the challenge that I have. I mean, again. I do some, you know, personal speculation with the portion of my portfolio and of course maintain that kind of core Bitcoin position. But, um, you know, from like, from getting involved in any of these things as like anything more than like a swing trade, I, I you know, struggle to really find a way to feel confident in valuing these things. And not to say that they're all worth absolutely zero and they're all scams, but when we look at like, I would say two faceted approach, like a, from like decentralization standpoint, like there's obviously a spectrum, right. And I, I tend to think that these things are at least at the moment, and maybe this will change in the future, like a lot of like decentralized theater as kind of has been surfaced on some of these things. But then you look at some of these other protocols um, like for like maker, for example, example, where they have like over collateralized loans and, you know, Th that protocol functioned fine throughout this entire downdraw, whereas, you know, because it, it, there's, there's no human doing any kind of qualitative analysis on the counterparties, you know, versus 
some of these large lenders basically said, oh, well, 3AC is credit worthy. They have a big reputation. We'll allow them to borrow under collateralized. And so I, I do think that like having some type of um, mechanism where it's just, you know, a, a programmatic evaluation of, you know, these set parameters around borrowing and lending, and no matter what your qualitative reputation is, um, you know, these are the set rules to operating on that, on that, on that platform and having that kind of programmatic aspect to it is definitely advantageous. Um, and the other thing is like, from a valuation standpoint, like obviously as all the assets in this space, like a lot of it is narrative and reflexivity, but like, you know, I think I, I would be able to get around it more if you said something like, Hey, look, like the protocol is kicking off X amount of revenue. I can project that out into the future, similar to like, I don't want to sound like a boomer, but like similar to like a discount cash flow model type of thing. Like, how do you think through, I guess, valuing these things or do you think it's too early that it's it's difficult to to come to some type of like fundamental valuation of, of one of these protocols i think it's i think it's probably still too early uh the only reason i say now there's a slight caveat <clears throat> i think during a bull market you have to realize that crypto as a whole is just so highly correlated so when bitcoin goes up ETH is also going to go up and, and a lot of altcoins are also going to go up with it they're probably going to go up with a higher beta because they're higher risk and uh, when Bitcoin comes down, it's probably going to go down. And all those altcoins are, <clears throat> all those altcoins and more speculative things are probably going to have worse downside capture, right? So they're going to fall even further. And so um, during a bull market, at, at, at a time when maybe it makes sense to tack on more risk, sure, you can build these models and say, you know, based on the amount of trades that happen on this DEX on Uniswap, uh, if they had a fee model, this is what holders could earn. You know, all, all these things, right? You, you can build these models. More people, I think, are, are awake to that. I think that uh, institutions and funds, uh, it's a great way for them to, to pitch and raise money and say, look, this is what this protocol is making. This is what's locked up. In reality, I don't think we've actually seen returns uh, correlate to that or returns for a lot of these tokens uh, during an alt season, during a bull market, uh, necessarily track you know, the most profitable or the, most, the highest revenue protocols, the highest revenue earning tokens are making the most money. And so, yeah, as you said, it's, it's very narrative driven. It's a very speculative market. I mean, there's, there's dog coins for some of the best performers. Like it's impossible to explain that to, to um, a fund or tie that to a model and, and tie that back to our traditional world and, and in the way that we value things. Yes, you could also say that's why they bubble and, and burst. I'm not, you know, I'm not disputing that at all. I'm not saying that dog coins are a good investment because they go up the most during a bull market. But I do think it, it kind of proves that um, it's still it's still so hard to focus solely on uh, models and things like that and, and try to relate it to how we how we price equities. And um, you know, there are some times I've done that. Like Axie Infinity was probably the only token I've ever had that viewpoint of. Last cycle, uh, I had a call with Delphi Digital like halfway through last year. I think uh, Axie Infinity was five or ten bucks. I was talking to them about the things they found the most exciting that other people might not be looking at. And they said, look, there's this uh, play to earn. There's this basically game developer that has made a game. This is how much money they're making every single week. This is their user growth. And if it grows, you know, X percent, this is what the token is worth. And at the time you could already stake your token and you received a portion of um, how much they earned based on that was your uh, interest you'd earn in staking the token, you'd get more tokens. And so if you ran that model really quick, I, I thought to myself, you know, even if the entire market goes down, 
if they even doubled their revenue, and it turns out like they 10X'd it and 10X the users, but if they even doubled it, it was one of those things where, you know, maybe I fell for the fundamental meme, but I think it's probably worth a bet if they're already letting you stake the token and earn a percentage of, of what this thing is making, it should go up. And Axie Infinity went up 10 or 15X and I didn't sell enough. And, and that's how it goes, but it was still a nice trade. Right. And so I think that those opportunities are very far and a few between. I don't think it's the wrong approach. I'm not telling people to not focus on fundamentals and not look at, you know, how much Uniswap generates in fees. But what we've seen is due to regulations and also just due to these things being so new, a lot of protocols that make money, they don't even pass the revenues through to token holders yet. Like Uniswap doesn't have their, um, their fee, whatever mechanism turned on. And there's a lot of protocols where it says they make a lot of money, but in reality, they're also paying a ton of money via their token to incentivize that growth, right? They have uh, they pay you a token if you lock up some money on their platform. They pay you a token for liquidity providers and, and whatnot. So their revenue probably isn't actually as high as they say. So it's uh, it's very early. I think that it's it's cool to start looking at these. I think uh, fast forward 10 or 15 years, it's probably going to be ridiculous to say I don't look at those things. Uh, but right now, I don't, I don't think that returns necessarily line up with that. I mean, some of the most exciting trades last year were just betting, um, you know, if Solana has gone up and ETH has gone up and layer ones are doing very well, and it's now in question whether we should have a platform that's a little bit more decentralized, a little bit slower, a little bit more costly like Ethereum, or we have something that's more fat, you know, faster and, and maybe a little more centralized like Solana. Like that's the only question you really have to consider when you're trading at layer ones. What does the market think is best right now? Clearly the market thinks that other layer ones can compete with ETH. Okay, maybe I get long Avalanche. Maybe I get long Near. Maybe I get long Phantom, right? And that was the trade. I didn't have to look at what's the fees generated by Solana every day and how does that compare to ETH? It was, if the entire market thinks there's more of a chance that layer ones eat into ETH's market share, I want to be long other layer ones. So you get, in crypto, I think you get like, um, you get presented with these with these questions a lot. And I think uh, the, th- the job as a trader, the job as an investor, if you're investing on this stuff, you know, altcoins, sometimes your, your horizon is six months or just, you know, just a year. I, I think the, the, the better thing to focus on is what does the rest of the market think about this narrative? Um, and, you know, where do those assumptions get ridiculous? Like Solana isn't going to flip an ETH this cycle, right? So if it starts to get to 20 or 40% or 50% of ETH size, even if I think that uh, these layer ones have a chance of, of beating ETH, it's like, I should probably take some profits. And, you know, at the same time, it's like, as, as these starts to get bigger and people start talking about flipping, that's a meme. It's like, eh, do I really think ETH's going to be bigger than Bitcoin? Even if I do, probably not yet, right? Probably makes sense to take some profits. So I think um, you get presented with those open-ended questions a lot more that I think are more helpful to think about than maybe looking at, you know, how much protocol revenue does this thing generate? Because since it's such a retail dominated market, there's a lot of people that just buy things based off what they saw on a YouTube or some chart they saw on Twitter. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's just simply how the market works. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's kind of what dominates returns, it seems. Hey, that's a, a good place to wrap it up. I know you got a hard stop here, but um, no, that was, that was really insightful. Luke, uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm going to talk to you for another hour. And this was my first episode not recording with, with questions. I don't, I don't think it went half bad. So maybe I'll stick with that format for now on. But uh, 100%. Where can people go to come find you? Uh, you can find me obviously on, on, on Twitter. I'm on there 24-7. Probably way too much of my time is spent on this damn website, but I love it. Uh, at VentureCoinist. You can just search Luke Martin. I'll be one of the first ones that pop up. Don't click on the fake accounts. They will ask for money. I will never ask you for money if you follow me on Twitter. So you can find me there. And then I also have a podcast uh, where I bring on 
uh, fund managers, analysts, exchanges, I ask people how they're making money and it's called stacks. Uh, well, before we wrap, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what do you, what do you think about right now, dude? Like about Bitcoin at 23K or 21K? Uh, last time we talked was a few months ago, maybe a month or two ago. And we were looking at some of your on-chain metrics that for the first time had finally reset, had gotten to levels where it doesn't matter what you think about macro. It was, uh, these are levels that I think you have to start buying at. What's your view now, dude? We've bounced a little bit. It's, we're at this weird phase again where people are, some people are saying relief Riley. Some people are saying bottom is in. What do you think about the market right now? Yeah, there's a, Luke's a good interviewer, everyone. So that's a little snippet of. of Why well, I'm just curious. I, I think the pick will before I before I log off. I'm gonna look at the chart. I want you. I want your take. Look, um, you know, I did like a 35 tweet thread that I, I pinned to my top of my Twitter the other day, and like I would say, to wrap it up, you know, it's kind of a, it, it's somewhat oversimplistic, but I would just say for like the sake of we only have a few minutes, like. You know, macro obviously looks terrible. I'm not going to do any macro LARPing on, you know, the current state of that. Like everyone knows, you know, the Fed is trying to combat inflation um, and they'll continue to do so until something like essentially breaks uh, or we enter some type of like, you know, deep deflationary spiral. Um, but from like a Bitcoin perspective, yeah, I think at this point um, we have finally, you know, for, for a few months I was saying, you know, okay, we've started to enter these, these bottoming zones, which are times to start to like DCA in. And that was, you know, around like 40 K ish. Um, but now that we've, you know, 40, 30 K ish. And then now that we've gotten down to the bottom of, of a lot of these, you know, metrics looking at a confluence of like five, six of them, you know, I think we're in a range where we've likely, you know, found kind of this bottoming accumulation range within, you know, maybe it's like, that kind of 17 to, to $25,000 range. And like my base case is that we've seen capitulation through price, most likely. Um, we've seen, you know, all these major funds blowing up. We've seen several, several measures of capitulation by all different measures on chain and not on chain. Um, and, you know, now I guess my kind of base case is that with all these like macro headwinds and lack of like kind of clear shelling point for the market, probably just kind of see some sideways for a quarter or so. And it's also reflected by like traditionally Q3 is the Bitcoin's worst performing quarter. Like by far it's Gosh. like 20% lower than any of the other second lowest. So that's not to say that, you know, necessarily continued further downside, but like just in terms of, you know, seeing any, you know, um, outperformance, like Q3 is historically just kind of done a bunch of nothing. So Yep. That's kind of, that supports like that base case that I have that I kind of think we'll just kind of chop around between that like 17, 25 K area for like several months and just range. And like, you know, you have the capitulation through price where it shakes people out from, Oh, it keeps going down. Like it's never going to stop going down. I need to get out before it goes lower. And then you have the time aspect where people say, Oh, well maybe this thing's dead. No one cares about this anymore. I should get out because you know, this, this thing's just like, you know, moving in like a, five, 10% range. No one cares about it anymore. All the volumes dried up and like similar to like kind of how 2018, late 2018 was into the beginning of 2019. I could see something like that over the next coming months. That's, that's kind of my base case for now. So. Got it. Got it. Well, good stuff, dude. I appreciate cool. you having me on. This was fun. Uh, yeah, sure. Obviously love all, love all your on-chain updates and whatnot. So uh, sure. appreciate you having on. This was fun, dude. Uh, all right. Take care, Luke. Peace.